This is an ABC podcast. The purpose of corporations is and always has been to promote the common good. And I think that it is now today when I say that phrase, I think that some people think that that is a counterintuitive point. How is it possible that for-profit corporations could have any purpose other than pursuing profits? But it's only counterintuitive because we've lost sight of the history of corporations, of where they came from. Ah, now let me just jump straight in here and say that isn't an invitation to flood my inbox with comments and objections. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. And the voice you've just heard belongs to William Magnuson, an Associate Professor of Law at Texas A&M University. He's just released a new book on the history of corporations. It's called For Profit. And it's not only about the past, it's about better understanding the financial entities that dominate so much of our lives today and will continue to dominate them into the future. Okay, so corporations and their often forgotten role in promoting social good. Let's park scepticism to the side and hear the argument. Willie Magnuson, take two. The purpose of corporations is and always has been to promote the common good. And I think that it is now today, when I say that phrase, I think that some people think that that is a counterintuitive point. How is it possible that for-profit corporations could have any purpose other than pursuing profits? But it's only counterintuitive because we've lost sight of the history of corporations, of where they came from. And if we trace them back to their origins, we see that corporations have always been intimately connected with the idea of the common good that is the enlightened interest of us all. Corporations didn't spontaneously generate from the soil. They were invented by governments and they were invented to solve specific needs of the societies around them. So over time, those needs have changed. And just as importantly, the people who have a say in what those needs are have also changed. But at their heart, corporations are just legal fictions made possible by the state coming in and giving them special rights And the reason why we give corporations these special rights, things like limited liability and eternal life, is that they expect them to promote the common good. So that's all a a little bit abstract. So just to bring it back to earth, I thought I might tell a a brief story about the origin of corporations in ancient Rome. Uh, This was the time of the Roman Republic. And we have a story from Livy about the Second Punic War. This was the epic conflict between the Roman Republic and Carthage. Carthage had sent its elephant-riding General Hannibal to rampage in Italy. And in 215 BC, Livy tells a story about this Roman general named Publius Cornelius Scipio, who writes to the Roman Senate and says that his troops are desperately short on supplies and he needs help to keep them in the field. And the Roman Senate writes back and says, our treasury is empty, we can't help. And so they make a plea to the Roman people and they ask, can the Roman people come forward and help us? And in response, Livy tells us, Three companies came forward and agreed to supply the Roman army. The only thing that they asked in return was that they be reimbursed for many losses from shipping their cargoes at sea, and they eventually get repaid. And they ended up fulfilling the terms of their contract, turning the course of the war against Carthage and allowing the Roman Republic to survive. And Livy writes, they were motivated not by the profit motive, but simply by the love of country. And over time, these Roman companies evolved into 
uh, something that looked remarkably similar to the modern corporation with protection from liability, the ability to outlast their owners. And this pattern is repeated over and over. We see it in the Roman Republic, but we've seen it in Elizabethan England. We saw it in Renaissance Florence. We see it in the Gilded Age, right? Corporations were created by governments to pursue an idea of the common good, the good of the nation. So when did corporations then first begin to lose that public interest purpose? It's a fantastic question, and I really think that it should be split up into two questions. For the first is, when corporations themselves started failing their purpose, that is, when did they stop pursuing the common good? And a second part, which is when society stopped even asking them to serve the common good. On the first question, when corporations lost their sense of civic virtue, look, corporations have been misbehaving for as long as they have existed. Indeed, uh, Livy even tells a story about one scheme of some of the corporations who apparently learn that they can get reimbursed for losses of cargo at sea. And so they start sinking their own ships and then falsely claiming that they were loaded with valuable cargo. But corporate greed has been a constant theme in the history of enterprise. We see it over and over again. The Medici Bank ends up going under because its own leaders succumbed to greed. So that, I think, has been a constant theme in the history of enterprise, right? The corporations themselves, although they were designed to serve the common good, oftentimes undermine it. But there's a separate question, which I think is harder, which is when precisely we stopped asking or even thinking that corporations should serve the common good. And I think the answer there is somewhat complicated, but it began really at the end of the 19th century leading into the 20th century, driven by law. So by the 20th century, corporations no longer had to petition monarchs for charters. They didn't have to ask for a charter to be created. Instead, they could just be created with the submission of some paperwork to some authorities. So that meant that corporations didn't have to justify themselves any longer. They could just be formed for any purpose at all. But there was another part of the ship that was driven not by law, but by politics. So beginning in the years of the Cold War, there was this existential challenge presented by communism, and it forced Western nations to double down on their belief in the virtues of capitalism and capitalist enterprises. And so corporations came from being seen as sort of these flawed but useful structures, which is what Adam Smith thought of them as, and instead turning into these defining features of Western life. It was the corporations that made us different from the Soviet Union. And so I think that was the real shift. And by the time that we reached the 1970s, we see economists like Milton Friedman coming out saying that the one and only social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. You point out in your book that there are two important events in modern times relating to the corporation and influencing how we view corporations today. And one of them was the rise of private equity corporate raiders in the 1970s. And then, of course, also the the rise of startups and big tech in the 1990s, 2000s. Could I get you to tell us why those two points in time were so important? Yes. Well, it begins in the 1970s with the rise of private equity. In the 1970s, the sort of the model of corporation that had evolved was the conglomerate that we were ha- we had these mammoth corporations that owned all sorts of totally unrelated businesses right there were comp- companies like ITT Corp that had telegraph companies bread businesses hotel chains schools and these conglomerates they were created because they thought they could turn more profits through creating these massive corporate enterprises but it turned out that conglomerates didn't run themselves particularly well It turned out that expertise in managing a telegraph company wasn't very relevant to managing a bread company. And it also turned out that their CEOs tended to care a lot more about their bonuses and their perks than they did about the management of the company itself. 
And so the private equity firm, in particular, uh, KKR, Goldberg, Kravis, and Roberts, was created to sort of solve that problem. They took a look at the modern corporation. They said, look, this is a flawed entity. This institution no longer works in the capitalist world that we're living in, and we can find a way to fix it. And their fix was the private equity firm, and in particular, a strategy known as the leveraged buyout that basically used raised money from institutions like pension funds and university endowments, used that money along with some debt to buy companies, and then sold those companies a few years later at a profit. That turned out to be a tremendously profitable strategy, one that became in the 1980s, it was first KKR, but then it spread to many other institutions. There was an entire, and today there is now an entire industry devoted to specifically this strategy, and it entirely uprooted the idea of the corporation. So that was the age of the private equity industry, and it was focused heavily on financial engineering, right? We are going to have high profits at all costs. The next age is really the startup age, which I think is the one that we are living in today. The age of the startup is in many ways, I think the equal and opposite reaction to the private equity phenomenon, right? So private equity firms were focused almost exclusively on financial structure, right? Regardless of product, but startups, they sort of didn't really care about profit, at least at the beginning. It was about creating a beautiful product that people wanted and then charging them nothing for it. And it's sort of an, an amazing idea that we can have the world's most powerful corporations like Facebook and Google give away their best products and not just to a few people, but to the entire world. But that's the world that we are living in now. Facebook, Google, they give away their primary services to everyone. So it's sort of the opposite of the private equity world that we had created in the 1970s and 1980s. And the startup world was a truly new phenomenon in the history of corporations. We'd never seen corporations that were even close to the size of Facebook or Google. But the idea behind the startup was really spearheaded by Facebook. And it's since been copied by many of the other large tech companies that we all know. And that was to create the best possible product and then convince people to start spending their time using it. They wanted to become a platform, a place where people gathered to do things together. And it was only made possible really in the beginning of the early 2000s when the prevalence of computers and the internet had now become so obvious to everyone. And it was also supercharged by another element, which was the uh, venture capital ecosystem that had developed out in Silicon Valley. And Silicon, these uh, venture capital firms wanted the companies they invested in to go for moonshots. They didn't want just a bunch of middling successes. They wanted a world beater, something that could IPO for $10 billion, $100 billion. One fascinating but often overlooked characteristic of startup culture is the focus on growth, growth at, at all costs. Intuitively, that seems like a mistake. It doesn't seem like a good strategy to put profit to the side and focus on growth. What was the reasoning behind that? Yeah, so since the beginning of Facebook, the highest priority on Zuckerberg's list and on the list of every other corporate executive there was growth. They even had a department known as growth that was one of the, that was actually the most powerful group within Facebook. And the idea was, we want our company to grow. This is a network. This is a platform. And what makes a network or a platform valuable isn't the amount of product that we're selling, but instead the amount of people who are using it. The more people who use it, the more valuable it becomes to each other user and ultimately our ability to monetize it. But at the beginning years, they didn't care about monetization. They cared about growth. And so they created all these features that were designed to maximize people's time spent on the platform, right? Things like endless feeds where you just keep scrolling down. It turned out that if you have to click 
to go to the next page, that was a disincentive to stay on Facebook. So they said, okay, we'll have an endless feed. Or they had all sorts of initiatives to get people to find their friends. All these things were about trying to get people to get hooked onto the page and then stay on the page once it was there. And the idea was, if we do that, then we can eventually turn a profit. And it turned out very successful. And the focus on growth above everything else, even above profit, uh, has been enormously influential, hasn't it? I mean, lots of companies now follow that idea. It's been enormously influential, and that's right. Facebook was the first one that really showed that this could be an enormously successful strategy. And now it is basically the, the model for every startup. We'll see whether that continues in the new environment in which we are living, right? We're seeing a world of enormous inflation, enormous interest rates. And so uh, venture capital firms may be focusing more on profits today than they used to be. But even still, this is the, this is the basic model that Facebook created in 2004 and that every other large tech company has followed since. It's just, we, we want to become a platform because a platform is more valuable than simply selling a hard product. And we're chatting with William Magnuson from the School of Law at Texas A&M University, author of the book For Profit, A History of Corporations. At the end of your book, you provide what you call guiding principles for ensuring that corporations once again come back to this idea of, of having a public purpose, serving the public interest. Could I get you to take us through those principles? And I'll just start you off. The first one is don't overthrow the republic. Yeah. So this is a, uh, all the principles, they're really just one large instantiation of a bigger lesson, which is simply that the blind belief that the pursuit of profit will always benefit society is flawed and dangerous. But at the same time, the idea that a corporation should pursue something other than profit is actually controversial. The idea that they shouldn't overthrow the republic, I think might actually be viewed as, as controversial. So the idea behind this, this principle is simply that corporations should actively seek to promote the foundations of democracy. Right? They were created by democracies. And that means that they owe duties to the institutions and the governments that created them. This means avoiding things like hindering democratic decision-making, distorting the information available to voters, manipulating them, lobbying for government policies that are simply handouts to special interests. Again, these are all very simple concepts, but over and over again, throughout history, we have seen corporations fail to do that. Of course, now social media companies are just beginning to realize that they have a responsibility to ensure that their users aren't manipulated during elections. The second guiding principle is think long term. Yeah, so this is a, a common critique of corporations, which is that they tend to focus on short term goals, right? Particularly with modern corporations that are listed on stock exchanges, corporate executives get paid bonuses based on stock prices and returns. And so they oftentimes tend to focus more on short term results than on long term results. The third principle is share with shareholders. Yes. So corporations are, by definition, institutions that are run by or owned by someone else. They're groups of owners. And those groups of owners are known as shareholders. The first really true corporation with a large shareholder base that we know of is the British East India Company. And that helped lead to this flourishing of the London Stock Exchange. But one of the problems that was created when we had a stock exchange was that there were all these incentives for insiders to manipulate and exploit their shareholders, 
right? And so it led to all sorts of stock manipulation, insider trading. And that is something that corporations must be aware of. They must be aware of their obligation to return to shareholders a reasonable amount of the profit of the company. Now, the fourth guiding principle that you have for corporations should be obvious, but it it sometimes isn't. Compete, but fairly. Exactly. So corporations, this is a basic principle, both of competition law in Europe and American antitrust law, is the idea that you should be competing in a way that is fair. Uh, So for example, the Union Pacific is probably the best example of this. This was a railroad empire that built the transcontinental railroad during the Gilded Age. And while they did this incredible feat of engineering to complete the transcontinental railroad, after they completed it, they engaged in all sorts of unscrupulous behavior. They were taken over by this robber baron named Jay Gould, who used all sorts of unfair strategies like spreading rumors about their competitors, secretly acquiring the stock of other boards and companies, and then raising rates once he had taken over them. So the idea behind that rule is simply that there are methods of competing that are fair, but there's also methods of competing that are not. And we need to be aware of which are which. Another principle that should be obvious is don't destroy the planet. So this, again, should be a relatively low bar. But again, I think that unfortunately, the mindless pursuit of profit can oftentimes blind us to it. Time and again, we've seen corporations place short-term profit over the health of the environment. And of course, what comes to mind today oftentimes is simply climate change, that companies have lobbied against climate change regulation for their own short-sighted reasons. But there's other realms where we have seen corporations place short-term profit over the health of the environment. We've seen chemical companies that pollute water supplies. We've seen factories that are polluting the air. Uh, And of course, this is an element of what we oftentimes refer to as ESG today, or environment, social, and governance goals. The idea that corporations should be pursuing things beyond simply profit, but also the environment and social and governance ideas. And so my book is aimed at trying to bring back to mind that this is not initially such a controversial idea. Now, I'll link together these next two principles, and they're very timely given a lot of the discussion we're having about inflation and stagnant wages and CEO salaries in many countries around the world. The principles are treat your workers right and don't take all the pie for yourself. It's an idea that is a bit more controversial than perhaps the other ones. The idea that you should not take all the profit for yourself is somewhat strange, right? If you have the ability to sell your product, get an enormous profit from it, shouldn't you, the shareholder or executive, whoever you are who's running the corporation, shouldn't you be able to take the profit that you're able to negotiate for, right? If you negotiate to get paid X percentage of the profit, shouldn't you be able to do that? And while I think there is some logic to that idea, it's also inevitable that some part of that extra pie is going to go to one group versus another. And it just might be that people who are in more powerful positions, right, the corporate executives, the private equity firms, might be able to negotiate either because of their leverage or their negotiating skill. They might be able to negotiate for a higher percentage of the pie and leave only crumbs for everyone else. But when that happens, I think that that is inconsistent with the spirit of capitalism, right? The fruits of capitalism are and should be divvied up fairly and reasonably. And of course, there's going to be debates about how they should be divvied up fairly and reasonably. But there are certainly examples where we have seen they've gone too far off the rails. There's massive income differentials between the top 1% and even the top 0.1% and the rest. And so I believe that that is inconsistent with the true purpose of corporations to promote the common good. And the final principle, don't move too fast or break too many things. Yet that is the essence, isn't it, of modern capitalism and that idea that disruption is everything. Disruption is a good thing. It's a progressive thing and an innovative thing. 
Yes, that's right. Corporations are in a way designed as institutions to allow innovators, scientists, entrepreneurs to take risk. That's one of their purposes. But somewhere along the line, rational risk-taking crosses the line into reckless indifference. And when you cross that line, bad things tend to happen, right? We saw in Facebook that at some point they were running million-person experiments on their social network users to examine if they could manipulate their users' emotions or if they could change voter turnouts. And it turned out, yes, <laughs> they could change their users' emotions. And yes, they could change voter turnout. Of course, you can do that, and maybe they learn something from it, but it's also experimenting on a massive societal level on humans. That crosses the line. There's some point where we are moving too fast. We're breaking too many things. We are too societally important for us to be engaging in reckless behavior. And so we need both corporate executives and government regulators to keep those things in mind. And just finally, you suggest in your book, For Profit, that where corporations fail in determining the public good is often where society fails in coming to agreement on the public good, on the common good. So in that sense, are you suggesting that we get the corporation we deserve? Do we get the corporations that we deserve? I I think it's a wonderful question. And it's something that I certainly struggled with throughout the writing of this book. I think it's very easy to condemn corporations, much easier to do that than it is to condemn individuals, right? They're faceless, they're impersonal. So it's appealing to blame all of our problems on these institutions rather than the people that are running them or that are making decisions about them. But it's also too important to remember that corporations are run by individuals and those individuals are themselves flawed. We have seen democracies descend into division and anger and violence and war. And so it's important to remember that corporations are also admirable, just like humans are. They bring people together. They concentrate talent and skill and intelligence. We see Facebook doing incredible things. We see private equity managers running corporations much more efficiently than they've ever been. And so corporations at the end of the day are really aimed at agreement and at harmony and at peace. And so I hope that if they can find a bit more of that sense of civic virtue, of their duty to other citizens and to the environment and to their workers, that they can be a real source of hope for both society and for corporations and entrepreneurs. Well, William Magnuson, it's been great having you back on the program. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much for having me back, Anthony. You're with Future Tense, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. The potential of carbon capture and storage has been much discussed on this program in the past, as well as the fact that many critics believe it's actually more wishful thinking than a genuine future solution to our climate-related problems. A recent study by the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis has cast further doubt. Carbon capture and storage can work, the report indicates, but current projects have far from lived up to expectations. Analyst Bruce Robertson. What we did was we went through the carbon capture and storage industry globally and we picked out 13 flagship projects. And by that, I mean they were either the largest or they were unique because they were in a unique space. In other words, doing, say, carbon capture and storage for the steel industry or or something like that. So we went through and we, we picked out the 13 flagship projects. And what we found was that 
although this industry is very old now, it's been at scale since the 1970s, actually operating at scale. And although it's been operating for so long, most of the projects simply couldn't do what the project proponents wanted them to do. And by how much did you find they were underperforming? Well, a pretty typical level was either failure to perform or performing at around that 50% level. So why are the projects underperforming? What are the main challenges that carbon capture and storage faces? It has huge engineering challenges. If we look at globally that the largest carbon capture and storage project in the enhanced oil recovery space, it only captured 50% of the emissions that it was after, that Shoot Creek. And then if we look at Gorgon off the west coast of Australia, the big LNG project, it was built by Chevron with major shareholders, Shell and Exxon. So they had access to some of the best petroleum engineers in the world and they can't get it to work properly. It's a $3.1 billion project and it simply doesn't work in the way it was meant to. And it's only capturing about 50% of the emissions. Again, it seems to be quite a common figure, that 50%. Some supporters of CCS say it would work given the right government regulations and market incentives. Your, your thoughts on that? Uh, look, we've seen in Norway there are two successful projects and they do have a different regulatory environment that has huge financial incentives. They have a very high carbon tax. They have very strong regulations on emissions that don't exist in Australia. So it is possible that, that, that in some areas you may see some successful projects. As I said, Equinor has had two successful projects in, in Norway, but um, they also did one in Algeria at Insular, and the carbon dioxide started moving underground in methods in, in ways that they had not foreseen, and they ended up having to shut down that project because it was too dangerous. So it presents huge engineering challenges. And, and as I said, before, you only have to look at Gorgon off the west coast of Australia and it is emblematic of the engineering challenges. You can take a successful carbon capture and storage project in one place, pick it up and move it on to another field and it simply won't work. And each place they put these projects is a unique engineering challenge. And I think that that's really the key point about this technology. It's not something you can replicate easily. So what would you say to those, uh, and many governments and indeed the UN, see carbon capture and storage as a way of fighting climate change, as a way of bringing down our emissions over time? This is, this is seen as one of the key ways of doing it. We saw a very limited role for CCS in very hard to abate industries, very, very industries that are very difficult to actually lower carbon emissions. Industries such as the cement industry was a classic example of that. But if we look at the way it's used today, most of the carbon capture and storage projects are in the gas processing area. So they're used to process gas. And most of them are then use that carbon dioxide to get more oil out of the ground. Now, if we have a look at the life cycle of the emissions, what carbon capture and storage does is it only aims to capture the 15% of the emissions in the gas process.
processing area. And it only aims to capture a portion of those emissions. And then the problem we have is, is that those emissions are on the whole used to produce more oil and gas. So carbon capture and storage as it actually stands today is not an emissions reduction technology, it's an emissions production technology. It actually produces more emissions. So it's a myth, is it, that carbon capture and storage can help to reduce over time our carbon emissions? I think it's very difficult for it to produce emissions. If it's used in the industrial sector, in cement production and in steel production, they're two areas where it may be able to reduce some emissions but it is a very problematic technology. And I think that that's the key issue. It's a very problematic technology. Well, Bruce Robertson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. And Bruce is from the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis. If you're interested in more on the topic and indeed problems with the concept of net zero, go to the Future Tense website and you'll find a link to our recent program on the issue. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer, Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. Hey, it's Joe Lauder here, and I've got a brand new podcast I want to tell you about. It's called Who's Going to Save Us? And it's a climate change podcast that's not strictly about climate change. Because we know climate change is real and we're all too familiar with the devastation it's causing. Who's Going to Save Us is a show about how much better things could be and the people fighting to get us there, like the climate scientists pushed to their limits by a lack of action, the traditional owners fighting back to stop major gas projects on their land, and some uni students who've taken their idea for a climate change court case from their classroom in Vanuatu to the UN. The science team at ABC RN and the team at Triple J Hack have been travelling all around the country to meet the people making real change and making it now. Who's Going to Save Us is your roadmap to a better future. Find it now on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.